Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadine Regan. This is the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. Last podcast out, I spoke to British musician and author Tracy Thorne about her brilliant life in music and books. You can find that interview on all the major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast and SoundCloud. This time out, I'm delighted to tell you that we have a brilliant Irish author with us, and the timing could not be better. Earlier this week, Kevin Barry became the only Irish author to make it onto the long list for the Booker Prize still one of the most prestigious awards in fiction. He picked up the nomination for his new novel, Nightboat Tangier, the successor to his previous works, Beetlebone and City of Bohan, both of which themselves have won major prizes. In addition to his novels, Kevin is also a playwright, screenwriter and short story writer. Nightboat to Tangier is a dark, beguiling and often very weird story. It's the tale of two ageing gangsters, Morris and Charlie, and their family members, Cynthia and Dilly, with the action moving between Spain and Ireland, and often getting pretty gritty. I caught up with Kevin at the West Cork Literary Festival, a brilliant festival, where we talked about, amongst other things, his tactics for writing well, his influences, and his early days, living it up in nightclubs and experimenting with everything from LSD to a career in journalism, and sometimes putting the two of those things together. Kevin didn't hold back, and it was a pleasure to chat to him. If you've thoughts on Kevin's writing, or in this interview, or what the hell, on life in general, by the way, do let me know. The show Twitter account is at my roots or show, and my account is at Nadina Regan. Before we go to Kevin's interview, here's a little sampling from his brand new novel. As the day came up to the meagre light it possessed, Morris and Cynthia went out to walk for a while. They had fallen in love in the usual goofy ways. The taste of her black hair, the static that lifted from her even the air, was excitable around her. They went out to walk in the cold by the river. By the north gate they went, with her hand in his, and across the shaky bridge, and out through the waking town. It was so cold you could see the dog's barks on the air. They were like waifs out by the river. That extract there taken from Nightboat to Tangier. And this is Kevin Barry's My Roots Are Showing. Kevin Barry, you are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. How are you? I'm very well, Nadine. I've just I've just crawled out of Bantry Bay, so I'm feeling I'm feeling very uh, zingy and refreshed after that. Yeah, we're down here for the West Cork Literary Festival, and you'll be giving a reading later on today on Whitty Island, and it is a glorious summer's day. The, uh, the sun is out in the sky. It's uh, it's one of those days when you're thinking Ireland's a pretty good place to be. Yeah, you know, it's, we, we, we don't see it and it, it's full glory often enough, really. But I've been um, I've been kind of swimming my way down the West Coast all week because I was reading in Dingle earlier in the week. So we came down yesterday through kind of and stopping off swimming everywhere in Waterville and Derry Nan and getting into Bantry last night. And yeah, it is, you know, for, for those brief moments of sunburst uh, when the sky is blue, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. And you won't want to be anywhere else really except the west of Ireland when, it, when it's like this. Well, it's a good time to promote a book and yeah. uh, you've got the new book out. It's wonderful. It's called Nightboat to Tangier. And of course, it follows up uh, several other novels, uh, including Beetlebone and City of, I always get this wrong, Bohane, Bohan. 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 Yeah. I always say, th- think of an Indian nan, a nan bread. That's that's the trick. So I wanted, when I was coming up with that name, I wanted it to have a kind of a real kind of mean, flat, at lawn kind of sound on the, on the, on the second syllable. So it's, it's Bohan. 
Yeah, because whatever about actually uh, the surroundings we find ourselves in today, uh, there's nothing particularly sunny about a lot of your fiction. The new book takes in gangsters, aging gangsters, waiting at a Spanish port in a very menacing way. And to be honest, all the books contain a lot of violence, a lot of danger, uh, drugs, sex. Uh, you know, you've been compared actually to the likes of, say, David Simon, actually, in terms of your preoccupations. And there's that sort of Tarantino-esque splashes of, I suppose, gore throughout the book. Um, but, you know, from your perspective, um, that kind of sensibility, like you grew up reading the likes of John McGahern, for example, who you've referred to a lot as an influence. So where did the um, the darker side come from? Yeah, I, and, and it's absolutely everything you, you, you say about the work is, is true, um, that there's a lot of darkness and, 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 and violence and all this kind of stuff shows up. But weirdly enough, I, I still essentially consider myself a comedian. I, I, I believe that the books are always generally in a kind of a comic mode. Now, it is a very dark comic mode. Uh, there's always sort of a freight or a cargo of, 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 of danger or darkness or menace going on just underneath the surface. Um, I don't know, so, somebody who I used to read a lot when I was kind of a kind of a, a boy writer in my early 20s was, was Cormac McCarthy. And he said something once. He said... Uh, there's no, there's no secret to it. Books are made out of books, you know. Uh, you write the books that you were influenced by. But I would add to that is that you're, you're made out of the graphic novels that you read as well and the films that you watched and the TV shows that you watched. And so much of it goes in around that time of your late teens, early 20s. I think the stuff that you were into then kind of dictates what you're going to work at as a writer or an artist for the rest of your time. That's when the real kind of, the brain is this kind of creative space sponge at that time of life this is proven scientifically by the way this isn't just me spoofing but it's the stuff that goes in at that age which is really really fundamental and like when I was late teens early 20s my big things would have been Twin Peaks uh, David Lynch movies uh, Pixies records uh, the first kind of house music that I was starting to listen to um, and those things all still feed into my work in a very, very fundamental way. There are, I would say, at least 487 references to the Pixies in the new novel. Um, and if, if anyone finds them all, they're going to get a prize, uh, get announced now. And Radiohead also feature there as well, which is always nice to see. Oh, Tom York gets a mention, yeah, in, in, in not the most uh, flattering way. But even though I love Radiohead, I must say, I listen to them all the time. So, uh, yeah, it's nice, it's nice to get Tom in there, yeah. One of the characters mistakes him for a lame boy from Summerhill in Cork or something like that, like, is, is the joke. Well, you mentioned early influences are important, but like you lived in 17 different addresses before you mm. were aged 36 and you published your first collection at the age of, what, 37. Mm. So in terms of your roots, I mean, that's a lot of roots. I mean, you were moving around, born in Limerick, uh, yeah. moved to Cork in the 90s. Why move so much? I did. Um, a lot of those 17 addresses were in Cork City. I was always moving and, and, and from flat to flat. Um, but it's weird, actually, about research for fiction, uh, the research you might do for a novel or, or, or a short story or whatever you're writing. And what I find is the best research is the stuff that you don't realise is research at the time. And it was just actually from moving around a lot and living in Ireland and England and Scotland and Spain a bit and in the US a bit. That was that was the research for a lot of the work that's come subsequently. Like for about, I think for exactly 20 years now, since uh, since January 99, I've been going to Spain every winter for a little while. I, I was still living in Cork and you know the kind of cloud settles down on the city in January, February. You go, Jesus. And I wouldn't say I quite get seasonal adjusted depression or whatever it is, but definitely the energy levels go lower creatively as well as everything else. So I started going, you know what, I'm, I, I can't go to, to, to Spain in the summer because I'm a pale ginger child and I'll just burn and be in the back of an ambulance once it gets over 22 degrees, you know. But, um, but I could do it in January and February where it's about 19 degrees and it's kind of really cheap. So I started to go every winter for as long as I could kind of afford. And some years it'd be a couple of days and some years I'd manage a few weeks or even a couple of months. And then I've, I've kept doing it for 20 years and the last five or six years I've been saying to myself, where's, where's the Spain book? Where's, where's my Spain novel? I really love the place. I find it a really vivacious atmosphere there. Um, and I just love the kind of... There's a sense in Spain, you wander around those little cities in, in Andalusia, there's a sense of something very ancient. And for years I was trying to figure out where's, where, where, how am I going to do my Spain novel? 
Well, we'll talk a little bit more about exactly how you've characterised Spain in the new novel uh, shortly. But before we do that, um, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer, that you were going to be a writer? No, I wouldn't say so. Like I, I did, I, I, as a young kid, I, uh, I, would, I would scribble stories and stuff like that. As a teenager, I, I had a kind of a teenage got poetry phase when I, I, I had about 18 inches of backcombed hair on top of my head. And the, the most unfortunate thing you can be in life is a ginger got because it just doesn't work out, you know. <laughs> it's terrible, but I used to lie amongst the headstones in, in St. Mary's Cathedral in Limerick City writing poems which haven't survived. I thought I was going to be a photographer when I was about 16 or 17. I thought that would be cool and I'd be able to travel and do stuff like that. Um, but even before leaving school, I was starting to write things for like mag- school magazines and stuff like that. And as soon as I left school, almost I was freelancing um, and reviewing gigs for Hot Press and things like that. So pretty much, and I started university in Limerick. I started a, in what was then NIHE um, and I lasted a week and a half. I think I'm to this day the quickest ever dropout from UL. So all I ask is a small plaque that should be put up out there somewhere, you know. Um, I got a job as a cub reporter, an old-fashioned cub reporter on a local paper. Yeah, you did stints on the Echo as well. So I think one of your jobs was to ring the guards in the morning to find out what was going on. And um, in terms of ringing the guards in the morning to find out what was going on, I wonder if, I mean, you were no angel. Oh, God. So, like, it was, it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition of maybe running clubs in the nighttime and by daytime checking out with the guards if there's been any uh, shipments of uh, hash into the coast. I do remember once, actually, in one of my first jobs, writing an editorial about Shannon Airport's uh, status or something uh, while under the influence of LSD. Hallucinating <laughs> heavily, but, but knocking out a very fine editorial. Uh, but yeah, I used to do in Cork in the mid-90s, I used to love to do the very first shift in the Examiner. Yeah. One reporter would come in at six in the morning. Yeah. And um, I used to do that because uh, often I'd still be up. So it was handy, you know. And the first job was to ring every one of the guard stations in County Cork there's about 40 of them and say lads you have An- Anton last night because the fuckers wouldn't tell you you know yeah. um, it, there could be 52 people dead in a riot and if you didn't ask they wouldn't tell you um, but yeah and very often in that kind of 90s time something that would frequently happen were boats loads of hash were getting stopped on the West Cork coast you know it was a big trade that was going up and down for many many a moon and that that of course fed into the new novel as well well one of the things actually about that time because I remember quite well in the 90s like you'd hot press magazine and all the other big magazines whether it was Q magazine Vox magazine uh, the enemy and there was a much bigger kind of glamorization of um, I suppose the drugs link to creativity you know we were still coming out of that I suppose 60s and 70s period where there was a, a feeling of deep connection with the likes of say LSD so what it could do for your mind in terms of making you deliver amazing writing and was that something that you were influenced by that whole kind of um sense of of like drugs as an inspirational thing I guess so yeah I had like at early 20s I would say I had, I had a huge uh, period where my big thing was kind of writers like William Burroughs and the, and the Naked Lunch and all that and actually my first time going to Tangier was a kind of a, a pilgrimage because he wrote The Naked Lunch in Tangier and I stayed in the hotel that he, he wrote it in and all that um I don't know. I mean, it's it's it's, it's very different for everybody. Um, I, I I certainly think in my early twenties, um, the stuff I was up to of an evening uh, certainly fed into my uh, creative spirit and creative life. It's not the same for everyone, and and there are obviously great dangers in people using hallucinogens or even smoking weed or anything like that. It's different for everyone, but for me, they were usefully useful. You have to be much careful as you get older because you 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 have to kind of. You have to be able to get up and do the work in the mornings, you know, is a fundamental thing. And I wasn't I wasn't disciplined at all as a writer until my late 20s. Like I was writing stuff, um, but it would often be four in the morning after coming home from Henry's or something in Cork, you know, um, and these genius sentences would be written and they would never stand up to the light of day the next day. And I really I got serious about my late 20s uh, and I got very disciplined about it then. And I realized it was something that I had to like I knew I had talent. I knew I had literary ability that I could come up with really good sentences and good funny characters and situations. But I realised then that that the weird thing is literary talent is not rare. There's loads of it around the place. Lots of people can write great sentences and characters, but what's rare is that combined with a real steely discipline where you go in and do it every single day 
when you'd rather be doing anything else because it's really hard concentrated work and I had to teach myself that bit you know I, I had to force myself to be to be disciplined and to take it really seriously some people do that thing where they write a thousand words a day other people just sit at a desk Nick Cave famously got himself an office to write mm. one of his albums because he just thought you know what I'll approach it with that kind of discipline so what do you do what's your setup and what's your timeline like do you force yourself to sit there for hours or is it a word count yeah not so much a word count but I do um I I, I get there first thing in the morning so I usually manage to make it into um the the shed out the back of the the old old police barracks that I live in in County Sligo um I have a, a three meter or three yard commute out to the shed out the back and the glorious thing is wi-fi doesn't reach it so i've no internet in there which is really important if i go online first thing in the morning i won't write anything useful so i've convinced myself that one there is a god and two he is a lever that he turns the internet on with at 12 noon every day so there's no point checking before that so i stay offline in the morning and i manage usually about three or four hours in the shed um i might be writing for 20 minutes of that but i'll stay there um, because it sounds kind of esoteric, but what you're doing as when you say you're going to write, when you say I'm going to write something, which is a declaration of enormous ego for a start, world shut up and listen to me, you know. Um, but what you're doing is you're making a pact with your own subconscious, because that's where fiction and drama and poetry and all that stuff comes from, comes from the back of the mind. You're saying, give me stuff, give me material. And my part of the deal is I'm going to be a pro, essentially, I'm going to show up. Um, and it's weird, like. Like, I'm very disciplined now, and when I'm at home in Sligo, I go in seven mornings a week for three or four hours. Um, and I'd say it seems to be going well one or two of those mornings in a week. Most days feel very slow and sludgy, and not much seems to be get going down on the page. But it's it's kind of a weird, eerie, kind of spooky business sometimes, because it seems to get writing seems to give you just enough, just often enough, that you're not discouraged and that you keep going. And one or two days a week, you get a half an hour here or 40 minutes there where, where the hand feels kind of guided and it's moving without effort across the page. And you go, oh. But you realise actually that the real writing days are the days when you're sitting there, sludgy, bouncing your little rubber ball off the wall as I do. That's when it's all sorting itself out in the back of your mind. And it's patience. You have to sit and wait for it and, and not kind of force, force it too, too much. Are you good at killing your darlings? You know, that phrase for, I suppose the point when you have to maybe jettison an entire section of a novel because it just doesn't work structurally I have kind of mixed feelings about that I understand the advice being been solid advice in some ways um, but I'm also kind of interested in the writer who can get all of her darlings onto the page you know sometimes what I find with a darling with a beloved passage that I don't want to cut is that my darling is in the wrong place you know, and it's a case of, of, of doing a cut and paste and shifting it around and the sequence is wrong. Um, it's towards the end of a, a late draft that you can start to start to see that stuff. Um, but then there are certainly there are days when you when you when you cut a beloved paragraph and suddenly you just find oh, I don't miss that at all. You know, um, but yeah, every 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 story is different. Every 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 new writing project kind of seems to somehow infuriatingly invent a whole new set of problems for you that all your past experience does nothing for you know every time you're kind of leaping into the abyss in terms of how do I do this how do I solve all these problems Um, experience does teach you one thing which is that it'll improve you know stick with it the first draft always looks horrible on the page the first draft of anything always looks like raw untreated sewage you know and it's the same for the most experienced and brilliant writers in the world first drafts are always terrible and early on in a writing career you get very disheartened by them and how bad they look um and that's the one thing experience gives you the the realization that keep at it you know it it will get better it will come up once i cut and cut and cut i'm particularly interested uh with your work in your capacity to describe whether it's nature or characters you have a real way with a sentence and when it comes to your working process, I wonder, does that aspect come very naturally to you, whether you're describing nature or just a sequence? And do you literally do a little fist pump in the shed or is it, <laughs> I mean, you talked about ego, but like, is it as, as obvious as that when you've got something? And has there over time uh, become a way for you to understand how to finesse or need or lock on to an image and, and realize when you're entering into the world of cliche and sort of know how to jettison that sure i mean 
in terms of physical description, I definitely have a kind of a lyric impulse sometimes. Um, and I've noticed in my earlier work, if I look back at it now, if I have some sort of passage or sentences of sort of lyric beauty, I will try to immediately barb it thereafter. I'll kind of try and take the piss out of it a little bit. I'll try to have it both ways. And I've changed a little bit because I'm kind of less embarrassed by it now. And I don't know, you, you change as a writer very slowly, but then you look back and go, oh, actually, I've changed quite a bit. And I notice with this book, writing this book, this has gone away a little bit from physical description, but um, writing this book, I, f- I, I found I was a little kinder towards the characters than I think I would have been writing this story 10 or 15 years ago. Um, it's a natural thing, I guess, as you get older, that you, 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 have, you have a little bit more of a kindness naturally towards people in, in, in bad situations. Um, like when you emerge as a writer, your first um, impulse is, right, I'm going to give this thing a kick in the bollocks. You know, I'm going to rough it up and I'm going to make make a kerfuffle. Uh, but then as you get older, you change a bit. And, and I, I, maybe kindness isn't quite the word. There's a tenderness, I think, towards the characters in this book that I don't think there would have been if I'd written this story 10 or 12 or 14 years ago. I think it would have been more more out and out kind of violence and a comic caper kind of thing whereas now it's, it's a more kind of contemplative thing it struck me actually that it's precisely the opposite in its movement from the two previous novels Beetledon and City of Bohan both began in their opening pages looking kind of like realism but then both of them very quickly tiptoed away into kind of fantastical elements whereas this one is is presented at the start as a very kind of heightened theatrical kind of premise but then it kind of starts moving towards realism. And I actually try and explain these characters as human beings. And the big, because they're such dreadful men, the big the big difficulty of it is you're trying to humanise them and try and make people go, oh, and just, just feel for them a little bit. You're talking about Morris and Charlie, who are these two ageing gangsters who have lived long and complicated lives and have done bad, bad things. And a lot of the novel takes place in a Spanish fishing port where I believe you yourself spend quite a bit of time just hanging out with a notebook, scribbling down details. And uh, you were getting a little, um, and I've read you, you got a little um, upset because apparently originally this particular port was a bit rougher than it now subsequently is. And rough was kind of what you were after for yeah. that for that feeling. Algeciras is still a dodgy enough town. It's still it's 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 kind of it's really friendly people there, but it's it's kind of pretty pretty rough around the edges still. Uh, they have cleaned up the ferry terminal a great deal from what it was in the early nineties. I was slightly disappointed with that, but I have this thing. The last few years, I've tried a, a new thing, which is kind of writing on location. Um, I look, I'm really interested. I've I've a lot of friends who are visual artists, and I always notice that visual artists are always trying to change their practice, change the way they work, and try new things. And writers are more inclined to get set in their ways and just keep going to the shed every morning. So the last few years I've been doing this thing and this brings physical description back into it where I'm kind of going to where the story or novel or whatever it is is set and actually writing some of it there. So I, I was in the ferry terminal at Algeciras with my, my fancy moleskin notebook out and writing bits of Morris and Charlie dialogue and kind of chuckling away to myself, looking completely nuts, I'm sure, over in the corner. So I went down twice towards the when I was doing the laugh last draft for a couple of weeks each time and was actually writing in situ um, and it, it kind of makes the physical description a cinch really you know because you can just look around you and, and 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 describe what's going on and listen listen to the sounds of what's going on I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in writing the soundscape of a, of a scene always as well um, and yeah it was, it was it was really nice it's it's a really nice um, what like one of the incidental things about a kind of a writing life that's really pleasurable is it gives you a, um, when you look back on previous work it gives you a very very intense memory of where you were you know at the time of the writing and how you were feeling and what was going on um, and it, 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 it's really nice now to have those kind of uh, memories of kind of uh, sort of May May mornings and kind of late October nights down in Algeciras in 2018 I was there the day the book was set on is it a October 29th or something 2018 and I was there on that day just to see how it finished, you know, just to work out what happened. Amazing. Um, At a domestic level, I often wonder how a writing life works. If a writer's organising principle is around their work, if it means that they turn to their beloved, as you may do with Olivia, and say, you know, I really need to go to Spain, like, now. Yeah, oh no, it's it's definitely a selfish um, trade uh, profession. You, you, You are kind of off in your own little world. 
a lot um, and even when you're not technically writing or at work you're kind of often in a state of distraction if, if you're really in the thick of a project um, uh, my, my, yeah, my wife Olivia is very indulgent to me and I, I realise I have to go off and do, do, do my thing um, she, she's along with my agent Lucy she's one of the first readers of the, of the work always you know um, and it's funny with the two of them they never, they, they, they'll never tell me anything that's bad but I know by their eyes if they really like something or not you know and I, I do very much trust Olivia and Lucy as, 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 as the first readers but it's um, yeah Liv, Liv, Liv says that she, she knows it's gone well if she can hear me cackling out in the shed she's like yeah it's gone fine he's cackling to himself out there amazing well there are two female characters the significant female characters in the book uh, Dilly and Cynthia and maybe you could tell us a little bit about how they work within the plot because to some extent they're both meditated on very much um and yet slightly distant from us yeah i mean dilly is is uh morris's daughter um she's she's kind of early 20s and like i leave a lot ambiguous around the edges of the story um it's set up as if she's been missing for three years we don't know really if she just hasn't been in touch with them and just wasn't doesn't want to deal with these people but we know that they're trying to find her down the south of spain uh she took off with the crusties i've always been really fascinated by that kind of subsect actually um like new age travelers more politely and i've known lots of new age travelers over the years from my days organizing raves and all that i always found it a really interesting uh decision to make to go and live your life in this very you know poor way in this very kind of um intense way um and they've shown up a lot in my work here and there um that sort of almost medieval sense about them. But Dilly has, has, has taken off with this crowd. As the book progresses in the second half, we get more about Dilly and more about Cynthia. And I think the tone of the book shifts radically when the women come into it, which was really inter- interesting to me. One of the things I like to do with whatever I'm writing is, is to kind of try and subvert readerly expectation. Not confuse, but just pull, pull the rug a little out from beneath the reader in terms of what they're going to gonna get when dilly comes into the story later on um physical lyric description really comes to the fore she's very attuned to natural elements cynthia the mother is a kind of a drier droller more pragmatic character but is very much kind of pulling the strings on a lot of what went on in the kind of criminal enterprise that charlie and morris were involved in we learned fairly quickly that both charlie and morris were romantically involved with cynthia over the years as well um i like to explain a little but not too much about a story and anything i want a reader to to have to fill in lots of kind of blind spots i i never like at the end of a novel where everything is kind of tied up quite neatly with ribbons on it um so so there's much we don't know about what went on into the dynamic of what is really a single strange extended family it's about what happens to the people around a criminal life you know it's it's about what happens um to the families around the, around these people who don't actually see themselves as, as, as dodgy at all. Don't, there's, there's a line somewhere late in the book where Morris wakes up in a mental hospital and realises for the first time in his life that he's a criminal. He goes, God, oh, Jesus, you know? <laughs> it's an astonishment to him. But it's... Um, it's kind of a surprise to the reader the way it's presented as well because you come yeah. in with them thinking that they're very reliable sort of characters and then later you're sort of going, oh, oh, okay, I get yeah. it now, I get it now. But they do, they think of themselves as absolutely just living their lives. Living their lives, they're... they're, they're They've been around for a while with me, Morris and Charlie. You know, they were they were kind of. I had these two kind of cork fellas in a while showing up in the shed, and they kept trying to get into short stories. They would show up as these little characters in in short stories, just as subsidiary kind of characters. And the effect was always immediately the same. They'd fucking destroy the short story because they're too large and they're too mouthy. Um, and I eventually decided, oh God, I'm going to have to give them their own thing. I'm going to have to explain who Morris and Charlie are. So I started off writing them and they were coming very easily. I could hear them. And the first few weeks I was thinking, this is a play. I'll write this as a play script. Then about a few weeks in, I decided, you know what, this needs the air and the space of a novel to really figure out who they are. Because I started to feel a bit more sympathetic to them. Um, but because I could hear them so vividly, the, the whole writing process of this was quite uncomfortable. The novel it was really fucking intense. I, I did it in just under a year, which is quick enough for me. Uh, like Beetlebone was the most of four years. Um, but it was just under a year. And I got so much that I, I couldn't switch off from them at the end of the day, you know. And I started to sleep really, really badly. Um, 
and I like I was sleeping two hours a night and stuff and it was around the time that all this stuff in the Guardian was appearing about we've worked out you need to sleep eight and a half hours a night or you're dead by next Wednesday I was going fuck I'm not getting that much a week <laughs> so I, I changed my work and practice for this novel and I started to write at night I'm usually a morning writer but I started to write from about 11 at night live would go up to bed with her book and I was really going for it on the atmospherics front I was lighting candles and I would have the log fire going and cello music playing in the background and I'd sit there for four or five hours and I'd be doing Morris and Charlie um, and really enjoying it about four o'clock I'd pour a vast glass of red wine and sip that and then I'd go up and I'd manage to sleep then from about five or six for five six hours and that was the whole process of the book and the minute the day I sent the book off to its editors um, sleeping eight hours at night again absolutely grand but I was just so caught up with them um, and I, but that you, you kind of want that you, you want a novel to almost kind of drive you a bit nuts you know mm-hmm. it's kind of a slow motion crack up in lots of ways writing a novel to, to go deep into it and get under its skin um, but I, I was I was glad to get him out the door <laughs> as well you know one of the things I wonder about with you I mean because you came to publishing relatively late in terms of novels and short story collections and of course you have your plays now as well which we'll talk about but You'd lived a life that was unseen in many respects. You know, you'd worked as a journalist, but you weren't the subject of New York Times profiles. When you're publishing after the first couple of books have been published and suddenly you've already had the glowing profile or the glowing review in the New York Times, you've won awards like the International Impact Award, which is kind of amazing. Expectations could become a problem. So does self-consciousness creep in? Yeah, do you know what, I, 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 I try to do something very fundamental. Um, I don't always succeed in it, but I try and remember that writing and publishing are very different things. Um, and what I really need to do is keep my attention focused within the peripheries of my desk and worry about the story. Um, and kind of trust that everything else will take care of itself once the story goes out of the shed and goes out into the world. Um, because prizes and reviews and interviews and going around and the events and all that, that's all publishing. It's nothing got to do with writing, really. Um, and the most important thing, and it's really hard, you know, to keep that stuff out of your mind. You're all, you're, you know, you're interested in prizes and reviews and all that stuff, of course. But the most important thing, and, I, and I, I'm quite good at it, I think, is remembering that, you know, if I worry about what's on the desk, Primarily, if I worry about the story, the text, the narrative, the voices within it, um, the rest will be fine. The rest, that's the way I've gone at it. The rest will uh, take care of itself. I think I was kind of lucky in a way that I was, uh, what was it, when my first slim volume of stories came out, I was 37. So I wasn't a kid and I wasn't sort of knocked out by, by the idea of getting plaudits and reviews and, and more interest. I was kind of able to deal with it. Um, I'd been sort of 15, 20 years working as a journalist at that stage like I was my journalism career is funny I was I was world famous in Cork you know because I, I was young for the examiner column it was very funny on a Saturday you know but my fame I always noticed my fame would start to dissipate by the time I got to about Fermoy or Mallow <laughs> suddenly but I was very well known in Cork and in Cork they still refer to me as oh the, the lad from the examiner oh yeah 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 that's amazing here I think I should be saying happy birthday to you shouldn't I yeah. when was your birthday yeah I was 30 the other week it was a big one 3 yeah when no, was your birthday I, uh, it was uh, June 25th I, I hit the big uh, Hawaii five o. I hit 50, so it was, um, it's interesting, you know, I usually happily ignore birthdays and, and pay very little attention to them, but one, with one like that, you, you can't, you, you can't ignore it, you have to kind of, there's certainly a kind of a take in stock involved, and it very much feeds, like I was approaching 50 writing writing this book, and it very much feeds into it, like Morris and Charlie aren't as old as they kind of make out, they're kind of early 50s, but there is that sense of, they find that their their, their time has kind of gone, their heyday was kind of 90s really you know um, they, and they had a good time and they made a lot of money um, Morris tells us at, at one stage he can't remember 1997 and he's not great on 98 um, so so you know that, that, that plenty went on with them but now they're getting the sense that oh fuck we don't really understand this world that's around us um, but a kind of a compensation for this which I discovered myself and I think everyone does when they get to this kind of age is the past becomes very interesting because what you realise is that the past isn't settled or stable. The past is shifting and rearranging all the time back there. And things that happened that you thought meant one thing really meant another thing. And it, 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 it's, a, it's a real fascination. Um, and 50 is the new 40. 50. I, 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 was, I was kind of 
telling myself that yeah as long as i can keep going for my for my swims and my, all of that i'll be fine but it's um i've happily kind of forgotten about it now again that the the thing has passed the big day has passed well you can still be considered a young writer because well first off because writing has such a an amazing career span as as opposed to say other uh, creative endeavors uh, particularly the likes of say pop music where it can be quite difficult yeah. to continue on into your 50s 60s and beyond but just in recent years you've moved a little bit into the world of playwriting as well I went to see Autumn Royal uh, starring Siobhan McSweeney uh, when it was on in the Project Arts Centre in Dublin and really enjoyed it and Siobhan most people would know by now she is has become world famous as uh, Sister Michael um, in um, in Derry Girls and I can I can actually tell you I had the honour of uh, my only acting role was opposite Siobhan in uh, in UCC um, a very long time ago in a play called um, The Physicists. Uh, so I've known about Siobhan for a very long time. So it's amazing to see her succeed now. But from your perspective as well, you know, suddenly you have Derry Girl star Siobhan McSweeney in your play Autumn Royal. And Autumn Royal itself, I mean, such a such an interesting concept. You know, this, this idea of two siblings struggling with their ailing father and really not knowing which way to turn. Um, it's in some ways a small play because there are very few people on stage um, but in other ways it touches an awful lot of us who will experience what it feels like to have that terrible situation where you have a relative and you don't know what to do they're too sick do you yeah. give up your career yeah. what yeah. do you do yeah it was um it was it was really interesting and kind of touching to, to see the effect of it on audiences because every family has this situation in a, you know, with, with aging or, or elderly parents, and the key line in the play is is uh, is delivered by the glorious Miss McSweeney at some point when she says the fuckers aren't dying off on us anymore, <laughs> you know, and it is the key thing in it, you know, and it's a time for the pillow over the fucking face job, as she says. But no, that that was, that was a joy. I remember um, the first um, day I I, I I got sight of of Siobhan at work was she did a Skype read through of the character of May. For, for myself and Katrina, the director, and we were just uh, nudging each other as, as she as she did the lines because we knew like no no direction was going to be needed here at all. She just had it, you know. She's a, she's a very gifted actor. Um, I hope I hope to do more for her. I it's funny. Um, I've had over the years, I think three kind of plays. You now the the first book of stories, there Little Kingdoms, was adapted. Um, I adapted that for for the late Meridian Theatre Company, Much Missed in Cork. I had great fun with it. I did a puppet show in Galway a few years ago called Burn the Bad Lamp. Um, again, adapted from a short story, and I've written this one. And I've 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 a rake more on the desk. I kind of like it from a pragmatic sense of having colleagues for a while. I'm naturally quite a sociable person, and like you know, the long days on your own in the shed over the long stretch of a novel. You know, it's lonesome stuff, you know, and you're sitting in the Sligo rain, looking out at the cows, God, Jesus, you know, another six months on this. Um, so it's really nice for a while to have, have workmates to go to rehearsal rooms and, 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 and the crack of, and the terror of, of first nights and all that. Like, it's, it's hard, you know, to sit, sit there for the first performances. You're terrified, absolutely terrified, until the first kind of laughs come true or so forth. But it's, um, no, I'll, 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 keep, I'll keep at it. I, I enjoy it. And I'm also, you know, writing, writing screenplays all the time. Um, and the, the, the first feature, I've made a number of short films, but Dark Lies the Island, the feature film, is coming in September. September, right? Yeah. And is that with Element Pictures? No, I have another yoke with Element, uh, a horse racing script called The Gigi's, um, with Dark Lies the Island, directed by, by the very lovely Ian Fitzgibbon, and a great cast with people like Pat Short and Charlie Murphy, and Tommy Tiernan acting in it, actually, and he's, he's, he's fantastic in it. And it was all filmed up around, um, up around where I live, in and around Boyle, and Lock Key and Lock Arrow. So very close to home. Um, I was in the queue in Super Value one day and they were actually filming a scene with a with a hearse outside a dead house and two old ones were in front of me in the queue and they were nudging each other going, who's dead? You know, who's 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 dead in the town? But it's, um, yeah, it, 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 I'm really happy with it. it. Like the tone of the stories, the short stories, is it's really inky black comedy, you know, that, that it's that it's, it's it's funny on the surface and underneath there's dark stuff going on. And I think Ian and the cast have really got that sense in, in, in the film as well. So, so yeah, in, in, in cinemas nationwide, as they say, from, from September, late September, I think. The new book was actually 
at one point going to be a play as well. You've been working quite a bit with the Abbey Theatre and the Abbey Theatre um, has undergone quite a few, I suppose, difficult moments over the past few years with uh, changes of directorship and the Waking the Feminist movement, which called out correctly the lack of female representation at the creative level in the theatre. So, you know, when you look at the place that you're in as a writer now, you know, working with theatre companies and being a practising writer in Ireland today, like, can you very easily see this sort of transformation that's that's coming across in terms of gender representation? Yeah, I think it's definitely uh, belatedly improving and, uh, and needs to go further. I think, yeah, one, one of the real eye-openers for me about working in theatre, and this is, it was an amazement to me, is how bloody expensive it is to put stuff on. You know, it, it's incredible for like a two-hander play like Autumn Royal. costs a fortune because basically you're employing about eight or ten people for months at a time, you know. And it, it goes up into six figures even with the smallest plays. And there's such limited theatre funding out there that it's hard to get stuff on and you have to be patient. I think I'm going to try work in two ways in theatre, as in write for for big established theatres and, and, and submit plays to them. I have I have another one in with the Abbey at the moment. Um, God bless the directors in there. It's one of those unwinnable positions, you know. Never in history has anybody been happy with the directorship of the Abbey Theatre. It's just, and I think people know that when they take those jobs. It's like being head of the Arts Council, you know. No one is ever happy with the head of the Arts Council or the Arts Minister. And God bless them for taking those jobs on. Um, I like the way someone like uh, I've, I've been very interested in watching people like uh, Michael Murphy the great actor the way he works or Pat Kinnevin with these really mobile limber kind of s- small shows that they tour around you have to find ways of being able to do it at, at, at lower resource level as well you know because it's so hard to get the thing but uh, there, is, there, is, there, is a, there is a great magic to, to sitting in a room and hearing your words on the air and the terror of it um, but you learn so much about your writing so quickly um, if if I have a single regret actually about my writing career, it's that I didn't work more on plays earlier because there's a lot to learn. You know, you're not just writing a story; you're also having to build this little machine that works in the round. Um, so that that's a regret that I didn't spend because there's, there's so much to learn. You know, that I, that I didn't spend time on that in my twenties rather than just crawling around Sir Henry's nightclub all the time. But you know, you did spend a lot of time in your twenties crawling around Sir Henry's <laughs> nightclub. And the thing about that, right, is like you got to do that out of sight. And these days, kids, teenagers, people in their twenties are so scrutinized. They are on CCTV, they're on their friends' phones, they are on other people's Snapchats. I feel like there's a fear factor that's crept into that yeah. age group and that demographic because they know that they have to be self-conscious at all times because of what could happen, yeah. you know? And do you have a certain, and look, I know it's normal for people to have nostalgia about their youth yeah. and compare it more favorably to other people who are experiencing that youth now, but do you think that there is really this kind of strong and potentially kind of menacing difference? Yeah, you know, I, I was talking to um, my my friend Mike McCormack, the writer, about this as well, and we were saying we were the last generation, really, who were really given the space to kind of really fuck about in our 20s and to kind of learn about ourselves as people and as writers and everything. You know, going on the dole and writing sort of reviews that Hoppers would pay a tenner for in 1993 and stuff like that and just really scratching around but having great space that people in their 20s wouldn't have now because they have to be so, like, focused on kind of career stuff because it's so difficult economically. Uh, They have to be so kind of performative in terms of social media and how they present themselves and all that so many pressures on people um that no i i feel huge uh, sympathy for um and and it's it's, it's yeah like we were my generation uh, like people i was talking to it's weird that there's a number of people i know who, who've all hit kind of 50 in recent times tommy tiernan was about a week before me uh, donald and ian was a couple of days before my publisher Jamie being at Canongate was two days after me and and we were that generation where in your 20s you could be you could be a, a great kind of a waster really you know and you could you had time and space to figure out stuff about yourself and about what you wanted to do that you wouldn't have now um, and I think one of the another huge difficulty that young creative people have now is that they can't afford to live in our cities and it's a really dangerous thing not just for them but for the cities 
you know and I know so many young writers and artists and painters who are legging it out of Dublin and are going to live in Belfast and going to live in Berlin and going to live in Athens and it's really really bad news for Dublin when it's losing it's creative people because they're priced out of it you have a voice as a writer you're a well-known name like do you ever feel like you have a duty or an obligation or that you should get more politically involved in order to kind of force that agenda yeah it's funny i mean i i i um i kind of never consider myself a heavily politicized person in some ways but then some stuff comes along where you can't shut up about it like the appeal repealing the eight and stuff last last year you have to do your bit in some ways you know and you know i've written bits about 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 the the you know direct provision and homelessness and stuff like that there is some stuff that you realize if i have any possibility of 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 doing any good i should say something here um certainly the case with say, say repeal the eight last year where you know you, you have to do, you can't say nothing you have to do something but even when david kitt was talking about having to move out of dublin and go abroad you know he made that very public he wrote a facebook post it went everywhere and then suddenly i think there was an actual sense of embarrassment um because he is such a you know he comes from a family of politicians and he's a well-known name that would have come through in the 90s so even older people in the establishment would really understand who he is and if he's saying i can't afford to live there you know it actually did make an impact i know david and we actually have a little project together at the moment we're trying to collaborate on something but it's um no i i i, I thought i thought it was a really interesting eye-opener for lots of people who don't quite realize for musicians and writers and filmmakers and visual artists god you know we're not we're not in it for the money generally i know i've been lucky you know i i i've found a readership for my books and I've won big awards and I've got bursaries and things like that most writers and artists aren't as lucky as that but you know I've, I've, I've also been lucky as well by the fact that I live in, in a remote part of rural Ireland you know and I don't have a big mortgage um, and it gives me the freedom where I, where I don't have to teach where I can just go to the shed all the time and, and make up my mad little worlds and mad little characters and I, I try to remember that that's a kind of a very privileged position to be in really and not be whinging or giving out too much about you know <laughs> um that i'm not you know i'm not down a coal mine i'm not digging the roads and i should be having a good time doing it so i i i, I do try to remember that when i go into the show, I try to tell myself you know you should be having fun here and there is something essentially really childlike about creativity you know um children are so naturally able to make up stories and make up little worlds around them and as we get older we get more self-conscious and we're not able to do it and I try to remember that you know you're, you're, you're at play here really is what you're doing in the shed it's an amazing way to look at it um, just I guess to wrap up are you still very very ambitious as a writer now that you've already succeeded in many respects in many disciplines do you still have that urge to showcase the very best of yourself and fight to to make something that you really rate yourself yeah it's interesting being out here being in west cork um brings back very vividly my kind of late 20s when i had a caravan out in alley's and i'd be trying to write novels and stuff and you know um and when i think of myself in my late 20s in terms of literature i was such a zealot you know this was the most important fucking thing in the world you know and i was going to give absolutely everything to this um i'm a little bit more relaxed about it now you know i've managed to get my books out and stuff and i have readers and stuff so but but i still hold it very highly um in in my regard as the most important thing out there um and i i i, I do um i do i do give a lot to it it's you know ambition and ability you know it's trying to get the two moving together and trying to figure out what you're good at as a writer and really 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 working hard at that you know if you can be very good at something you can potentially be great at, at it um and yeah no I, I i i'm slightly more relaxed than i was in my zealot days of my late 20s when i was just real a real a real madman about about literature and books and how important they were and films and all of that um and actually i remember one day in 1999 very vividly an august day out in Allahy's walking and I hadn't published anything then or a story or nothing you know um I went for a walk out by the cliffs and I remember asking myself are you are you serious you know are you serious about this are you really going to do this and I said yeah I'm absolutely going to do it you know I, I won't stop until I've got published and I'm going to do nothing else until I drop and it was August 13th 1999 and I kind of still think of that day as my as my uh as my writer's birthday and I kind of mark it 
a bit every year and it's so it's coming up now soon it'll be it'll be 20 years i'd be i'd be i'd be 20 next month in in writer's <laughs> terms so it's um you have to kind of make that declaration to yourself that yeah you know i'm going to do it seriously you know i'm not going to be distracted from it i'm not going to not let anything get in the way of it well as i was mentioning the new book is out now night boat to tangier and it is such a beautiful enjoyable read with so many sentences in it uh that are worth savoring uh kevin I mentioned the title of this podcast is My Roots Are Showing and just to play us out, is there a little song that uh, really summons you up spiritually that you would like to play? Well, at this moment in time, I guess um, I'm still heavily in Spain in lots of ways. It'd be really nice to go out with something from Miles Davis' Sketches of Spain. Lovely. Kevin Barry, thank you so much. Thanks a million, Nadine. Cheers. My thanks again to Kevin Barry and we wish him the very best of luck with that Booker nomination. The shortlist will be announced in the coming months and as always, the uh, winner will be announced in October. So we're keeping our fingers crossed. Coming up on the podcast very soon, we are going to have the New York episode. I went to New York and I met the amazing author and podcaster, John Ronson. So that one is going to be coming to you from his New York home. But until then, this is Nadina Regan signing out. Till next time, do take care. My roots are sure.